From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking with scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as visiting public figures and guest speakers to the UGA campus. The 13th century Sufi mystic Jalaluddin Rumi transcends national borders and ethnic divisions as people from around the world have appreciated his spiritual legacy for the past seven centuries. Though his works are widely read today in their original language across greater Iran and the Persian-speaking world, he has been described as the most popular and best-selling poet in the United States. That fact is due directly to the efforts of my guest today. In the interest of full disclosure, we have been close personal friends for more than 20 years. And that's why I am very happy to say that joining us on this episode of Unscripted is internationally renowned poet Coleman Barks. A resident of Athens, Barks is UGA Professor Emeritus of English, inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame in 2009. An exhibition, Praying Aloud in Public, The Papers of Coleman Barks, opened in the Rotunda Gallery of the Richard B. Russell Building Special Collections Library in 2019. Coleman Barks, welcome to Unscripted. Thank you, Alan. Love poetry, soul poetry, whatever we decide to call it, casts a very deep spell and can seem ancient and contemporary at the same time. Why do you think Rumi continues to resonate with Western audiences to the extent that it does? Well, it's a mystery the extent to that it does. Uh, uh, Robert Bly thinks it can trace its popularity back to the Council of Nicaea in Greece, which uh, took out a lot of the ecstatic parts of the Bible, of the New Testament. Uh, I'm not sure, sure that was uh, the reason why he's popular now or not, but uh, I, I think it may be uh, the, because uh, we, we had Walt Whitman, who was a kind of natural ecstatic, and we had Theodore Redke, and we have Galway Connell, who is the direct descendant of uh, Walt Whitman, and uh, I would say Jalaluddin Rumi. So he's a, he's a true ecstatic. But I can't explain the uh, popularity of Rumi. I, I had no idea that this was they're going to sell four and a half million copies. <laughs> uh, it's just outrageous. It's been translated into 26 languages, including Finnish and Indonesian. Uh, so it's very big in Jakarta <laughs> and Helsinki. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and Russian. You ought to see the Russian copy of uh, this book, The Essential Rumi. Um, it looks like a piece of wedding cake. It's just <laughs> encrusted with all oh, this. Is the, I mean, the Rus Russians know how to do it upright. Yeah. And when they get fancy. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the, this is the nice one, too. We did the, the American edition, as, as beautifully done, too. So, uh, but, but prior to your work, and with the translations are translating the, the works of Rumi into the tradition of American free verse, but prior to that, uh, American audiences, Western audiences, were sort of locked out of the writings of Rumi. Well, 
Rumi's poetry is densely r- musical in Persian. It's rhymed and rhythmed and uh, uh, very strictly kept to. And uh, so, uh, and when you start to do that, and when you, after you rhyme three times in uh, English, it becomes a, you didn't expect the limerick uh, to, <laughs> to be come, to come in. Yeah. It, it becomes a joke. Yeah. The third rhyme has the joke. Right. Uh, uh, probably the second rhyme, too. <laughs> and, uh, uh, a lot of people would disagree with that, but there's some good reasons to. Uh, obviously, they are beautiful uh, rhyming poems in English. Theodore Ratke is a good example. Uh, and, of course, Emily Dickinson. Yeah. But but Rumi's work is not so it's not bound by meter or rhyme. No, I, I, I put it in the long lines and uh, uh, unmetered and unrhymed uh, language uh, of American free verse. I I, I don't uh, rule out uh, sound clusters, and I just use them when they occur, and. Uh, um, but I don't try to make any kind of uh, uh, recurring sound. Have you noticed that your relationship with the work changed from the beginning to middle to now? Has it evolved in a way? Oh, I'm sure it has. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't tried to uh, say that and uh, make just to make any sense of that uh, the evolution, but. Uh, Seems like I'm beginning to, uh, the lines are getting longer and more, uh, f- the freer, uh, the free verse is getting even freer. So we're getting more like prose, which is uh, your area. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's interesting, actually, just because uh, as it continues to move and progress and even uh, approach prose, does the poetry of the language change at all? Well, uh, he wrote, uh, uh, he spoke uh, his discourses, which are, are kind of prose. Mm-hmm. So we have, we do have a lot of talking that he did. Mm. And, and uh, he, he would have three or four or five, some things, and six people taking down the language as he spoke it. Mm. Uh, so he, it's, it's a close to spoken language. Uh, in Persian, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's appropriate to put it down as uh, American prose, which, as we know, uh, came close to uh, being uh, like uh, uh, talking mm. with Hemingway mm-hmm. and uh, those short uh, sentences. And, oh, there are no uh, fancy uh, turns of phrase. When, uh, when, um, so if there were six people copying down what he was saying, did it take on the nature of the Gospels and there were minor variations of stories? Uh, well, of course, I don't know Persian, I, I, uh, so, so I don't, I've never looked at the, all the versions that, uh, but uh, I imagine they, some of them exist, all the actual handwritten notes uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, came down uh, in, uh, in Konya. In the Mevlevi Museum, there where uh, Rumi is buried, 
along with his cat. Uh, <laughs> he, they they had wanted to put his, his his cat liked to sleep on his chest. A lot so of they just put his cat in with him. <laughs> I don't know his cat's name, but I I, I have uh, taken the liberty of naming it. <laughs> what did you name it? Hamush. Hamush, oh. which is a uh, silence. Ah, oh, perfect. He he comes back to the silence, uh, that word silence. He gives gives the poem back into silence, and uh, eight hundred of the quatrains that he he wrote. So sometimes he comes back and refers to his friend, Shams Tabriz, and uh, sometimes he gives it back into silence, and sometimes he refers to sunlight, which is a Another way of referring to Shams is Shams means the sun. Shams is a very interesting, mysterious character in regard to Rumi. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a, that's what Rumi and Shams gave the world uh, of religion. That is the friendship of people as an icon for uh, what's sacred. Tom says, uh, an outrageous thing, he says, if you were to take everything, all the religious furniture, uh, all the mosques and all the cathedrals and all the Kaaba and uh, the, you know, the, the uh, Medina and uh, all the uh, uh, shamanic drawings, all the uh, paraphernalia of religion, if you took all that away, what you would have when people are doing five times prayer is that five times a day you're bowing to the one, uh, to that in your, your a friend that sees your own soul. So uh, the, the, the recognition of what is sacred in each other, that's what uh, Shams says. Uh, we are actually acknowledging if you when you try to worship, you know when you do five times prayer, you do you're actually doing uh, acknowledging uh, your friend, the glory of friendship. It's a beautiful thing. It's absolutely beautiful. It's very. I wonder which of the apostles was Jesus's friend. Oh, we have an idea, right? Yeah, yeah. It might have been James. I don't know. I thought they, it was they, they, I thought it was Judas. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it is it it's a the whole personal relationship in a religious context gets mischaracterized often but that's a beautiful way to posit it. Mm, yeah, that's what they the uh, friendship is uh, all about I think that uh amazement when you find in another person somebody who's uh reminds you that you too have a soul. Shams really allowed, when we think about, and you've written extensively about Shams, one of your books is devoted to the work of Shams. Um, he really allows Rumi to be more of a holy man. Yeah, uh, he, he emphasizes a quality that he calls soul fury. And the, the, the book is called Soul Fury. And, uh, uh, if you pick it up, uh, begin at page 135. 
That's where I start to try to define what uh, soul fury means. It's a quality in yourself that is always looking for uh, some for something in another person that is wildly alive and and beautiful to you. So that uh, I think that since about twelve years old, I, I've been looking for soul fury in uh, other people mm-hmm. and in the works of art and in paintings and in, you know how you see it in Van Gogh mm-hmm. is obviously that's you can tell that soul fury there whatever it is the burns in a Van Gogh painting that I know that I want to mm-hmm. call it soul fury mm-hmm. it must find expression mm-hmm. and it, it finds it in uh, whatever your art form is and Remy uh, had to find it and let it be known in his poetry. And Sean saw that. And uh, he said, uh, Remy has three ways of writing. And one is uh, that, uh, that he can read and uh, uh, I can read and uh, everybody can read. And the one that... Uh, and nobody can read. And he says, I am the third script. <laughs> yeah. so his, his friendship was, was the un, un, that's unsayable part of what Rumi was trying to say. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's a counterpoint to Rumi in a way that I've, all, I've often wondered, was Shams real? <laughs> was he real? Yeah, was it a real person? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a... Uh, Buried in under a minaret on the way to uh, Tabriz, and uh, I've never been out there to see that. Uh, there's a place in uh, in Konya where there's the, uh, they call it Shams tomb, but the the guy who's in charge there who takes takes care of you when you come in, and he says, "Come this way," and he takes you and sits you down somewhere. He takes a reading on you, and he realizes where you have to go to sit in Psalms' tomb. So he takes you there, and uh, and you do what he says. Mm-hmm. And but uh, uh, he said he said everybody in Coney says Shams is not there. <laughs> he's he's not in that tomb. Wow. Yeah. He, so elusive. Yeah. That's a, yeah. He's just uh, he, he's uncontainable. Mm-hmm. Shams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're speaking about, you're mentioning Konya, that's Turkey. Yeah, Konya, Turkey. And why is uh, Rumi buried in Turkey? Because that's where he lived. Okay, he did live his life there. Yeah, but... he, he was born in Balk in uh, northern Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And then the Mongol uh, ponies uh, threatened to start coming down and uh, did come down and kill 38,000 people in one afternoon in Shiraz. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills from languages and literature to biological sciences build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to become informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu.
We're back for more of my conversation with poet Coleman Barks. Uh, so let me take you back to uh, the post 9-11 era in our world. Um, 2004-05, I think it was, the U.S. State Department arranged for you to go to Afghanistan. So at that time, Rumi is the top-selling poet in Afghanistan and also in the USA. Uh-huh. Well, and then I got a phone call from uh, Ayatollah um, Zanjani, from who's in a, strangely, in a bookstore in Sacramento, California. <laughs> and he'd found one of my books, maybe this one here, yeah, The Essential Rumi. And he'd look through it, and he, uh, and he said, uh, you, we've got to give you an honorary doctorate. I said, well, it's fine. I said, you fly me over. And he said, we'll do that. And, and uh, well, I said, but you got to fly my friend, uh, Robert Bly, over too, because he got me started on this. And uh, and so he said, well, we've never given two at the same time, but we'll give him uh, some, uh, honor him in some other way. So they did fly Robert over there. And he, See, she says, you know, Robert says, it's good to have two people over us. you got to have some on a trip. You go on a trip, you've got to have somebody to com- complain to. <laughs> That's really true. So you got an honorary doctorate from Tehran University, and Robert Bly got a mug. <laughs> a mug, <laughs> something like that, a little, a little honorary plaque. He got it, and he, we were sitting on stage, and Robert just looked at it and put it under his chair. <laughs> Oh no! And it's still there. Oh no! Yeah, no. He he just left it there. He, oh. he we, we left that room, and he didn't he reach under the chair to get it. <laughs> so a, somebody's got an honorary plaque. It's a keepsake uh, in a yeah in, in a casbah somewhere now. Yeah. But um, so that was when you visited Iran. But was it earlier that you went to Afghanistan? Uh, I was. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, the State Department said. Decided that the, the, the Assad situation is a, that uh, uh, the national poet of Afghanistan, Rumi, uh, and uh, was uh, also a best-selling poet in the United States, or one of the best-selling poets. And so they said, "We we will send you over there." And so they flew me over there, and uh, I, they took me to the parliament, and I started reading. Uh, the Rumi poems that are in English, because most everybody knows English in Afghanistan anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call uh, the Persian they speak there. They call it Dari. Ah. Uh, so they uh, they began saying the poem that I was singing in English. They began. They all had it memorized in Dari. <laughs> they all the, all the legislators. Wow. And you know. That just doesn't happen in this country. No. There is no poem that everybody in the Senate would know. <laughs> no, there's <laughs> not. Like, maybe um, there's a night before Christmas. <laughs> maybe. Maybe that. Wow. Well, uh, that's an ecstatic experience for you. It was. It, uh, it, was a con- it, was, uh, it was a confirmation that I was doing something right. Mm-hmm. If they recognized the poem in English, not in their language, but in English, they were recognizing what one it was of Rumi's, and and they had had to memorize it in school, yeah, oh, or yeah. just on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
they went again, huh? And they said it all the way through. So that was good. That was a good moment for me. Yeah. Well, it, it's a great moment for you and for just a great moment in general. And yet, it was a very, uh, you know, violent, conflictual time in the world right then when you went. It was a Taliban time. Yeah. 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 Uh, they were, and they had. Uh, I had a lot of guarding. Uh, you know, they had uh, everywhere I went. I went in, in the jeep with two uh, soldiers. And the, and two automatic weapons. Wow! Uh, two machine guns, you know. Wow! And they were in constant contact with each other. These jeeps that are riding. I've got the point, you know. I've got the point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, either the Jordanian or or British. That's really interesting. I I've done a little traveling in England, and uh, I, I know uh, Devon pretty well. Yeah. Down south. And uh, and they were always from Devon. Really? So I, I, it's like I talked to him about Exeter and you know <laughs> and uh, the Devon countryside and all the wild ponies. Uh, so it was fun to have that kind of. And every now and then I'd be guarded by uh, an American, you know. Every once in a while. Guy from uh, Idaho, <laughs> <laughs> big tall guy, goofy guy from Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> In addition to your work translating Rumi, you've got a score of your own books, of your own poetry. How how do you think uh, all of your translation work? I mean, and your po- your own poetry predated your work on Rumi. Yeah. How do you think the work on Rumi has affected your work? I wonder about that. How I've probably got to eventually formulate a, a coherent answer <laughs> to it, to the question, and, and I will. Uh, but uh, of course, it's a it uh, has inspired me. Uh, to, you can't work on somebody who uh, produced uh, poetry so uh, totally and all, all the time. He was work, always producing poetry, mm-hmm. and it's all about friendship, as we've said, and. Uh, or is all about uh, prayer and uh, a conversation with the beloved, uh, or the, what they call the friend, which is the, the inspired part of the self, the uh, the soul. They're not. We will get a little embarrassed by talk about the soul, but uh, they didn't. We won't. You and I don't. Oh, no, oh, no, no. Yeah. See, that's where yeah. you do find your own voice right then. Uh-huh, yeah. You've said before, you've told me before, and I'm sure you've said elsewhere that when you're doing your roomy work, you have to get out of the way, but when you do your own work, you kind of get in the way. I'll get my life. I've put the details of my life. I built a poem from whatever those details are. Uh, my personal shame, my personal uh, glories, and the things that I, 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 my personality delights in or, or is uh, bothered by. Mm-hmm. And uh, But in with the roomy work, I need to step away and uh, my, from the personality and uh, let something else come through. Uh, 
and I hope that I hope it does. It does indeed, and it affects a lot of people. You've been explaining to me my first the, the first thing I opened with that first question. This is why people respond to it. This is why people find it so compelling. Everything you've been saying, um, and I'm I'm not going to bring up all the people that you know and all the people that you know have been deeply affected by this, but um, I did want to uh, bring up um, that you were on a Coldplay album in 2015. Oh yeah, <laughs> their seventh album, "A Head Full of Dreams." You were reading on their studio record. Oh uh-huh, yeah. That's a good... Chris Martin has been very generous with me, uh, and he he put that poem "The Guest House" on on his album. It was he he let the poem work on him, and uh, uh, he really just absorbed it so much that he lived it. And uh, I mean, think is it uh, in that book? I'm pretty sure it is. One one ten or something. Uh, You've done so many readings, you know where your books, you know where the poems are. In well, I books. should you know, but I, <laughs> I may not know that one. Can you, uh, oh, the guest house, here it is. Oh, yeah. I didn't bring my glasses. I had to borrow uh, Alan's, but uh, we'll see if he can work. <laughs> this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and embrace them all. For each have been brought as sent as a a messenger from beyond. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture still. Treat each guest honorably. He may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Yeah, so Chris uh, liked that poem, and he sort of uh, lived by it for a while. And uh, his uh, teacher, Habib Sadeki, in uh, Los Angeles, uh, encouraged that in him. So they used the poem as a way of his becoming conscious of how moods, different moods, and di- uh, uh, come in there's different uh, just different uh, as people to a guest house as uh, visitors and to the self to the personality it's beautiful it's beautiful and you you created that image those words out of a word that was a different word right it wasn't guest house it was something else it was um, caravanserai or something like that you told me once I love those caravanserais over there. Uh, big, uh, they're huge rooms there where you can put uh, uh, several uh, camel uh, caravans, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, of twelve camels, you know, just you and, uh, and all the sheep and all the cattle and all. Uh, it's, it's, 
And so there's just a, there's these enormous indoor spaces, mm. like a circus tent, you know. Mm. Uh, it's huge, and I'd love to. They're all around uh, Konya, and uh, you go eight or ten miles out in any direction, there's a caravanserai. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful oh, they're, word. They're fascinating. I like the, the work I did in putting that book together. It seems to be, uh, uh, I like the way it's, it's uh, it holds together. And it's got a bunch of recipes at the end of it uh, for chickpeas and other things. Dishes. Yeah, dishes. Uh, from uh, So uh, uh, the metaphor of cooking and uh, was uh, extremely important to Rumi. He often compares the student and the teacher to the cook and the, and the chickpea <laughs> is just being cooked. In the in the pot, and this uh, teacher's always hitting the chickpea on the head with the uh, uh, spoon, and then making uh, giving it, uh, uh, making in the boiling water, so that it can take on the flavor of the spices, be something useful to a group of hum- human beings around a table. Teaching the chickpea to be delicious. Yes, that's exactly right, yeah. That's where we need to rework our educational system. <laughs> We're trying to make each other delicious. Yes, indeed. That's a good idea. <laughs> that is a great idea. Uh, and, uh, rather than uh, words that are used to talk about the purpose of education. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, let's try to be delicious. <laughs> we do need to confuse that, the entire calculus. Um you're working on a new book? Always working on uh, 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 Rumi. I, uh, he's he's going to kill me, you know. <laughs> he hit a little, uh, I'm talking worth it. The last 12, 15 years of his life, he worked on He always dictated his poetry, and he worked, walked around Konya uh, saying to the scribes who were always following him, uh, the, the six books, of the Masnavi, which is uh, a uh, uh, wisdom poetry, which he says tells stories, tells jokes, and, he, and then he comments on the stories and the symbols in the stories uh, in Iran. They, they love that, that book, and uh, I do too. It's a, but it's a, one of the untranslatable things, you know. It's like translating, try to translate Finnegan, Finnegan's Wake into... Uh, uh, anything mm-hmm. Chinese? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you do that. Try to translate the Masnavi into American uh, free verse. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to pry yourself in there. You're going to do it. Oh, oh yeah, I'm going to do all. I've I've done uh, the first book one and, and, and book most of book book four. Uh, I'm gonna finish it. Yeah. Yeah, you will. The six books. Yeah. Well. And then then, then I'll just roll over and die. <laughs> <sighs> when the time is right, when the time is right, um, Coleman, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure Thank to talk. Thank you for you uh, getting the word out on it. Yes, uh, indeed. The word is quite out. I would say. I hope so. Yeah. 
Thank you.